Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we wanted to talk about the insurrection. So Lisa, um, do you want to start with what happened? A group of Trump supporters were encouraged by the president and members of Congress um, who supported him to uh, have a rally that eventually made its way over to the U.S. Capitol. And then members of that insurrectionist mob uh, barreled their way into the Capitol with zip ties and open carried weapons to try and potentially kidnap and harm uh, members of Congress. Uh, you know, the Capitol is full of surveillance. So the archives of the U.S. Capitol are preserving, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hours of tape of, you know, insurgents who are anti-maskers and not, were not wearing COVID masks, who are, who, their entire faces are everywhere. And those same insurrectionists uploaded their own videos of them committing various crimes of treason and sedition inside of the U.S. Capitol. They were transmitting their own videos <laughs> and Facebook living their own crime. Yeah, one thing that strikes me is how much worse it could have been, given that members of the insurrection were able to get into the Capitol building, get into members of Congress's offices, and into the chambers. It just felt like there wasn't a plan. Like, the only real thing I heard articulated was just the desire for violence like the only legible feeling was violence but that was just like a means and not really an end there was no goal I don't think other than MAGA America first and anybody who studies I don't know race is clear that this is white supremacy and so it's everywhere. It can't just be located in one day, in one series of acts by a small-ish group that had some military trained personnel inside of it. It has to be seen as part of a larger public history of the way in which whiteness exists to maintain itself and perpetuate itself at the expense of people of color. So that's Muslim lands and that's, you know, building the wall um, you know, at the border, and that's the, the detainment policy with ch children of of immigrants, and it's you know it it is anti LGBTQ politics in the administration, and it's it is all of those things. So even though the number at the Capitol was small and visually kind of gauche and diverse, this is a huge swath. These are your family members and your neighbors and your teachers and your preachers, and they are everywhere. So it's not like this is some small group that just has to be exposed and then we get back to normal. One, one thing I found interesting was the relationship that the protesters had with the police. So many people on the alt-right and you know, during the uh, the Black Lives Matter process this summer, you know, had this um, back the blue mentality and to see how that um, operates at the protests in the Capitol and the fact that so many people involved in the protests at the Capitol 
were off-duty police officers. It's just interesting to see that dynamic articulated. Like back the blue is important when it defends your private interests. But there's this confrontation with the police when they're not defending your interests or like when they're defending COVID guidelines. So I just think that that kind of police support really is just an articulation of white supremacy and not actually <laughs> of um, law and order. Oh yeah, I totally agree. It's completely self-serving. So <laughs> in Arkansas, we saw um, the legislature open you know, five days after the, the riot. And the first thing that happened was that the the Trees and Caucus ran a stand your ground bill. Stand your ground bills are almost universally opposed by police unions because they increase the likelihood of lethal force used against cops. And so that is an anti back the blue thing. So when they say black the blue, it's completely self-serving, it's not true. I think for me, what was interesting is that a, a larger swath of the American population watched you know, the Capitol Police trying to defend the Capitol against the mob without any support, really. So they saw, you know, this huge mob that everybody knew was going to descend on the Capitol lawn. And it was clear that the Capitol Police had no backup. They had no backup from other police forces or from the National Guard. And we know now, and we knew later that night, that the mayor of D.C.'s calls for reinforcement were totally ignored. And so even when you know, the governors of Virginia and Maryland marshaled their National Guard to come into D.C. The DOD uh, hadn't approved it. And, you know, I think it's a problem that we can't even FOIA the Capitol Police because they're under the Department of Justice. So we can't even FOIA their calendars or their phone calls or their text messages or their memos. Like all of that is shielded, which seems to me to be a total problem. I think too that people don't understand the relationship between protest and riots because there was an intentional conflation of those two ideas in the 60s um, with Goldwater, LBJ, and then later Nixon. And so, you know, people, white people see any black organizing or speech as a riot because it then allows them to feel like they can crush it because what they really want to do is hunt black people. And so, you know, they also can't see their own actions in like trying to take hostages or, you know, harm, you know, other white people in Congress as an act of insurrection because they think all white speech and all white organizing is protected because of whiteness. So you, as a consequence, then the public doesn't understand that protesting is a right, right, uh, under the First Amendment but that riots are not, and they see all black speech and all black organizing as riots. So I think that lack of race savviness, it contributes to a white supremacist culture. And if anything, I hope that the folks watching on Wednesday during the insurrection have a better sense of the ambivalence, both that the, the Capitol Police have towards policing itself, but also towards policing white bodies and the way that they are actively encouraged to use more force and brutality when, when protesters who are not using violence are just gathered around the Capitol. So the visual images and video of the difference in treatment between BLM protesters or quite frankly, even the women who protested Kavanaugh's confirmation, they were treated more brutally at the Capitol than anything that happened with the MAGA rioters. And so, you know, conservative rioting always gets a pass where 
you know, progressive organizing gets mislabeled as rioting. So, you know, I, I hope people have a better visual understanding. I think that they do now about how those things are operationalized, even when the stakes are so high, like at the Capitol. Yeah, I think they have the visual understanding, but I don't know how much understanding there is about like the coordination between the Trump administration and what police forces were available. Or, you know, there hasn't been a briefing from the Department of Justice. What kind of mechanisms played into the lack of police presence and exactly how vulnerable the Capitol was that day? Yeah, I mean, I think that that will come out. So, you know, four of the standing committees in Congress have open investigations. And I think that they are going to probably produce a massive commission. And so, you know, they will do the work of truth. I don't know that there will be reconciliation, but it will be like the 9-11 report. And I imagine that, you know, people will make documentaries of this moment and it will be, it will be a major um, moment for a cohort, right? So for, you know, a lot of people, 9-11 was their major security cohort. I mean, that, that defined their cohort in terms of their understandings of security as a generation. I think the rebellion at the Capitol and that riot, without a doubt, will be a security moment that, you know, defines this generational cohort as, as their first real political memory of um, how authoritarianism was operationalized through white supremacist violence publicly. When I think about what people should be doing right now, like people who are deeply invested in a, you know, a pluralist and multicultural democracy, that is strengthening institutions, but it's also accountability in those institutions. So it doesn't make, it doesn't make any sense to just throw money at schools when all the teachers are white supremacists inside of them. Right, it's going to take parents who are doing accountability about what's being taught in the schools, and it's going to take parents running for the school board who are invested in democratic processes. It's going to take parents and community members who are deeply invested in the debates happening in state legislatures around textbooks or right teacher pay or teacher pension. So, I, I really think that when I look at my, you know, social cohort, they could be doing so much more to strengthen institutions, but everybody is both so ground down by capital in the rat race and trying to stay afloat because they're underpaid and, and capitalism is so grueling. And they also lack the imagination to understand how they can participate in meaningful ways despite that, or even because of that. So I just, I really see this being a time for a revitalization of interest in, in people choosing to spend their leisure time building institutions and doing civic work that is progressive and responsible and producing white accountability and accountability in general, but that speaks to a lot of the you know inequality that's feeding this white grievance culture. And insofar as the middle class and the you know the intelligentsia don't want to do that, everything is lost. If they choose not to do this work, then we're going to succumb to massive authoritarianism as climate change accelerates. And I just really do not think that people have the imagination to see how horrible that is going to be and how totally fucking unprepared their skill sets are to manage that in the face of what will be an authoritarian, you know, massive global movement. So we got to get it right now. And that means everyday people have to, you know, send more money to build their public libraries and advocate for higher teacher pay and 
we've got to support our frontline workers who are exhausted and who are, you know, PTSD and who have had no support. And we have to double down and train more doctors and nurses and, you know, I mean, and we need a Green New Deal. And it's time to do bold action. I just, I just hope that the, the white liberals have the stomach for it because the only reason that this shit is still standing is because black voters delivered Georgia and they did it without the support of many white folks in the Democratic Party establishment. And the sooner they get with that fucking program, the more likely it is that we're going to be able to survive the cataclysmic, you know, crash between white supremacist authoritarianism and climate change. I worry about those elections in Georgia because a state like Georgia is flipping, especially on the expansion of the voter base and in particular the expansion of Black voter rights and registration. Um, I worry that it will continue to produce uh, candidates who do chase like the extreme side of the party to collect those votes, you know? It's like more than ever, we can't lose, afford to lose votes. And so we are going to have to pander to that extreme side of the party. But, but I, I also, well, I mean, that's a GOP problem. That's their own Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. But you see then, you know, Kelly Leffler who took a hard right turn and lost, you know, so I don't know. And, and I also wonder, you know, with, um, the language at the Capitol where you had protesters um, yelling, kill Mike Pence. You know, how much do you then, if you're in a position like Mike Pence um, or Mitch McConnell, how much do you continue to invest in supporting Trump at all costs? Because, you know. But that ship is sailed. They got what they wanted out of him and they supported him at all costs anyway. So the ship is sailed for them. They don't flip back to the center or whatever that means for the Republican Party right now. There is no center. There's no moral center. There's no political center. There's Mitt Romney being a good Mormon, saying some reasonable things sometimes, but also he was there glad handing the president for most of those years too, talking out of both sides of his face. So the the Republican Party is, um, you know, they are going to face some serious reckoning about what, what happens. And there are only two possibilities. Either the moderates split off and form their own party or they try and retake it. I guess there are three or they capitulate to the right wing extremists who are holding them hostage slash holding their hands. And that is not our problem. I mean, it's really it's really not. I think that what Biden will do is put a bunch of uh, effort, especially in the first hundred days into immigration reform. And there will be a big push to increase Latinx, Hispanic, you know, Latino voters because that's a place where the Democratic Party has not put a bunch of money. Uh, obviously, Arizona has been a really tremendous flip. And part of that is the McCain legacy. But part of that is also a really deep and progressive vein of uh, Arizona progressives who worked really hard on that Senate race. So and in the presidential election, too. So I think that the Democratic Party has no choice but to seriously understand that its future is black and brown demographically. And I think Biden gets it. I think his choice of Kamala gets it. I think that the appointments that they're making throughout the executive branch get it. I think that you will find the DNC much more likely to support uh, Latino, Hispanic candidates in the next congressional cycle. And I think that has to be the pivot because 
you know, the Latin X Latino Hispanic vote is as important to the Democratic Party as the black vote, which is where they focused on because of white guilt. And now there has to be a really concerted effort to bring those people into the party and center them, not just as voters, but as idea, you know, as idea makers and as visionaries and as organizers. And I think that that's the only future. And so it's one of the reasons why the Trump administration shit on critical race theory so much, because they understand that whoever captures the black brown vote is going to rule politics for the foreseeable future. And the Democrats, you know, the corporate Democrats didn't want to get on board with that, right? Because their corporate interests are mostly anti-black and anti-brown. And yet now that I think that they are, they are understanding in a different way that they have no choice. So they will behave accordingly and it'll be probably poor. But at the end of the day, I think there's a reckoning coming about the importance of, you know, centering black and brown people as visionaries and to take over the Democratic Party. And even though those white old heads don't want it, it, there's no there's no other choice for them. And demographically, that's the only one for the Democratic Party. So the rest of it is just sort of, you know, rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Like if <laughs> if you can't get black and brown people to center the party and center their own ideas to move it forward, then we're just going to crash. That's like, I think, a question that comes up early in the Biden administration. Like, what do we focus on right out of the gate? And so, I mean, that's why I'm not super thrilled about impeachment, you know, because it's like, <laughs> I, there is this, in a sense where, you know, I just think we should move on, but there's also a sense where, like, you do have to hold people accountable. So how do you negotiate that um, time? Because if you don't hold Trump accountable, what changes about his behavior or the amount of power he wields over the party? Uh, but it's also like, why, like, <laughs> why do we still have to chase this dragon, you know, when our energy would be better spent? <laughs> because he is us. We have to chase him because he is us. He is 100% unexceptional. He is the most banal elements of whiteness. And, and the aspects of his presidency that liberals find most distasteful are the ones that are banal and everywhere. So we have to chase him because he is us. And by us, I mean white people, but also America, right? So he is the product of hyper-individualization and shitting on the welfare state and Reaganomics and trickle-down trickle down economics. And he is the product of venal nativism and you know racism and white supremacy and anti-Black public policy and gun nuts. And you know he is the product of what America is. He is, he is the culture of America insofar as it is a white supremacist colonial place. So we have to pursue that. It's not gonna go away anytime soon. No, it's, it's not gonna go away. And there was uh, during this insurrection um, a conversation that, about civil war. And, you know, gun sales in 2020, higher than ever, uh, there is a legitimate fear that that's the path that we're heading down. I don't know who, I mean, I don't think so, though. I mean, you saw every major corporation in America, from Chuck E. Cheese to Hallmark to Walmart to AT&T to Ford, all of them were like, we're not going down this path. It's bad for business. And all of those financial elites, including Goldman Sachs and all the major banks were like, fuck this, this is bad for business. So the backdoor check on democracy, surprise, is the capitalists and the finance capitalists 
decided that Trump was now a loser and that the well was poisoned and they weren't going to go down that path, I will tell you that the lost cause is still lost cause. So, you know, there is a sense where the, the insurrectionists and the civil war fucking lost. They got crushed and it will happen again that way. I mean, I think that the bigger thing is what are we going to do about our media ecology? What are we going to do about the militarized white supremacists who are living in this fantasy scape where they, you know, their grievance culture pushes them to take over spaces in the public sphere? And, and what are we going to do about capital? I mean, you know, if you have more wage distribution and you have a smaller rich poor gap, then the country doesn't feel so civil war-y because there's not so much inequality. So, you know, the Democrats really have to grapple with the way that they help produce and sustain inequality as a thing that constantly cuts them off at the knees, right? Where they're losing members of Congress in any election and they're losing state houses and they're losing, you know, state legislatures and they lost the judiciary. Like, you know, it is both true that civil war is bad for the economy and true that neo-Nazi crap sells. Both of those things are true at the same time, even though they appear to be contradictory, they're not because the capital is focused on whiteness at all costs. Obviously, I don't traffic in optimism, but I actually do think there are a bunch of opportunities that exist now that didn't exist before the riot that are good for reframing the Democratic Party's uh, values, which is a long time coming. We didn't have that conversation with Barack Obama. We definitely didn't have it with Bill Clinton. We haven't really had it since LBJ. Carter tried, bless his heart. But we really have not had a reckoning about the values of the Democratic Party and the way that they sustain and produce the very things that they say that they're trying to combat. So I think we're in for a big conversation. I think it's going to be a really bumpy ride and I hope we get there together. But um, but man, I, we just really need to get through the Biden inauguration. <laughs>